Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Steve McAdam. Steve served for 12 years as CEO and president of Empro Industries, a $1.4 billion publicly traded company. Steve is also one of the lead presenters and CEOs, part of Sounds True's new Inner MBA program. This is a program we're producing in partnership with LinkedIn, Wisdom 2.0, and a division of NYU called Mindful NYU. It's a nine-month certification program that begins in the middle of September 2020, runs through May of 2021, A fully virtual option is available, as well as scholarships, and you can learn more at www.innermbaprogram.com. I'm so happy I had this chance to feature on Insights at the Edge, Steve McAdam, because he's really a thought partner for me with what type of training best supports a new type of business a business that focuses equally on human flourishing as well as financial performance. Here's my conversation with Steve McAdam. It's a great joy for me to be speaking with Steve McAdam. He is such an unusual business leader. Recently, when we were together in front of a live audience at an inner MBA hub at Wisdom 2.0, I said in front of the audience that to me, Steve McAdam is like a unicorn. I'm not sure as a very accomplished CEO if he liked that or not, but I think of him as such an unusual, rare type of person, someone who has a traditional business background, a Harvard MBA, worked as a consultant at McKinsey, and at the same time has wholly and enthusiastically, and I would go so far as to say fervently, embraced a path of personal development, not just for himself, but in his leadership of organizations. At Enpro, which is a large publicly traded manufacturing company, he introduced the notion of the company operating on dual bottom lines. 
And I wanted to start our conversation, Steve, by having you explain to our listeners what a dual bottom line is and how you came from a traditional business career to operate with a dual bottom line as your focus. Yeah, okay. Well, hey, Tammy, and uh, thanks for having me on this. Um, the dual bottom line, <clears throat> technically, is uh, is just the view that uh, performance of the company, financial performance of the company, and the development of people are held at equal, at equal levels of importance. So one is not subordinate to the other. I often use the term, they're two sides of the same coin, uh, depending on what side you want to look at. Now, that said, we actually didn't really say, the, the dual bottom line, that terminology came to describe our overall you know, operating model, operating philosophy system, which is, which is actually much bigger and more involved and detailed, which I'd, I'd love to take a minute to describe if, if, if okay, uh, because the dual bottom line is, a, is, is almost a colloquial descriptor of that that we came to after some period of time used inside the company by everyone to kind of just describe this overall notion of what we were, the type of company we were trying to build. Um, and the type of company we're trying to build really was built around the purpose, the formal purpose of enabling the full release of human possibility. Uh, and with, with three important values, safety, excellence, and respect. Uh, and respect really points to human dignity and the equality of all people. And a governance model that is built on uh, federalism, meaning uh, dual citizenship of affiliation with one's you know, operating plant or operating division, as well as NPRO, as well as the notion as Charles Handy called it, of subsidiarity, which pushes the responsibility down to the closest kind of unit of action, if you will. And the other governance, key governance element is the notion of council governance, since it's a distributed authority and power model. And then underneath that overall purpose, values, and governance sits our uh, principles and then our operating system. And our principles really have to do with leadership and beliefs that we hold about leaders, uh, beliefs about our worldview, uh, beliefs about people, and beliefs about economic value. And under each of those four categories, there are four or five key sub-elements that articulate those principles more fully in terms of what we, what we believe as a company and how we've tried to organize. And then underneath that, our operating system is specific to NPRO and includes how includes what we believe is important for how we do innovation, sales, sales and operations, planning, manufacturing, strategy, and 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 human development, and that's all wrapped up. And so you take each one of those elements, and there are then lower level principles, practices, beliefs about each of those what it takes to do each of those in an excellent way. And many business people be very familiar with many of the elements and some of them are a bit unique to us in terms of how we thought about it. So that whole picture, if you will, is what became known over time 
as the dual bottom line model. Well, there's a lot in that, Steve, and over the course of our conversation, I want to bring forward some of the highlights. But to begin with, yeah. tell our listeners a bit about your own journey from being a more traditional financial performance-oriented leader to being a leader who embraced this more rich, complex, human-based, this is my language, type of organization with a dual bottom line. Yeah, well, I guess it was a, it was a, it wasn't a big, uh, you know, huge epiphany that came to me one day, Tammy. It was over my whole life and career, uh, starting young, very young, when I grew up in a very modest uh, household in a, in a small steel town in southern Ohio, and started working, you know, to make money when I was in sixth or seventh grade, passing papers and cutting grass and so forth. So it was a very blue collar town. I went to it was one high school, went to went to school with 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 uh, uh, children of blue collar families who were friends of mine and so forth. So and then uh, uh, and and so even from that very young age, I was very comfortable around people that had to that did work with their hands. And and even in my job, summer jobs and, and first jobs as a mechanical engineer, I worked at DuPont and worked, you know, shoulder to shoulder with uh, mechanics and pipe fitters and millwrights in, in chemical plant. And uh, and really, it was it was I didn't kind of know it at the time. But as I look back on it, that was, those were very formative years because I spent a lot of time with people who did such a good job when it came down to the actual task and uh, and some of these people had a poor uh, reputation with with management as people that weren't committed and so forth. But I, but I worked with them. And when we got to an actual task, whether it was aligning a pump or installing a seal or whatever the task was, they were very, very good. And they cared a lot about doing that job very, very well. And so I started to become interested without really knowing it in, well, why does the company treat them like kind of a, uh, you know, dishonest, uh, misbehaving teenager, if you will, right? With all these rules and requirements and, and doubt that they're going to, you know, the, 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 the working assumption is that they're trying to screw off more than do a good job. And that's not the experience that I had. And so then, you know, time continued to evolve. I went to, I went to, as you mentioned, I went to business school at Harvard, was lucky enough to have uh, Chris Arduous as one of my professors. He was one of the guys that Peter Singe really uh, studied under and learned about and wrote about as part of the fifth discipline. It was right around when Peter was coming out, when he came out with the fifth discipline. I remember reading that book and a light bulb went off in my head and said, wow, that is that's how companies really should run. And so then started to work at McKinsey and worked at McKinsey for 10 years, serving a whole range of different clients, mostly focused on operations work. It was always strategy, but a lot of uh, operations work, working with, I uh, uh, worked with a European automotive company in an assembly factory, worked with uh, pulp and paper companies in paper mills and in box plants and uh, worked with uh, uh, electric utility company and in, in coal 
coal and, and gas burning plants and nuclear power plants. So I worked with frontline folks of all degrees. And what we did is we, we mobilized, we were working to mobilize the problem solving capability of those frontline groups that we would bring together and facilitate problem solving teams to identify improvement opportunities and so forth. And I came away with so many insights about how much kind of latent potential resided in these parts of the company that were just left without a process like this, left, left virtually untapped because the way the companies ran really prevented that type of uh, initiative taking and creativity and teamwork and so forth. Uh, it certainly wasn't, wasn't uh, uh, built in a proactive way. It, at best, uh, the clients I worked with, it was neutral and somebody could do something if they really took initiative and were like that. But in many cases, it was actually you know, kind of held back, if you will. And so then after, uh, McKin after I left McKinsey, I went to the operating world, became a leader, became then uh, CEO uh, at a pretty young age. I was 41 years old and, um, and w wanted to have the organization really involved in helping improve, improve the way we ran. And so originally at that time in my career, it was really – it wouldn't have been a dual bottom line model. It would have been a very people oriented model and it would have been uh, developmental and, Hey, let's include people. Let's educate them. Let's treat people right. Let's have good values. Let's have good, uh, a, a good purpose, et cetera, et cetera. However, that is all uh, to the end of making more money, making the business successful. Right. And I'd say that's where, Many uh, really good companies today sit. Uh, they care a lot about people. They treat people right. They bring talent in. They develop it, and they expect it to to perform and perform better for the company. And the shift that I made once getting to Inpro was this full notion of uh, of the of the equality of that. That those were not different because. There's a, when people believe, I think, when people believe broadly that they're being invested in, but they are being uh, somehow treated as means to an end, as opposed to an end unto themselves, it's different. There's still a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, we management, we're better than you, we're smarter than you. We get to set the rules. We do set the rules. You follow. You do what you're told. Uh, yeah, we'll involve you and so forth, but to a limit. And I saw that as capping what was truly possible for people to create and do and produce. And I also didn't square with uh, how I view the world, which is, uh, and as I'm going along in this, I'm, I'm I started doing much more uh, personal ego development work to learn more about myself and how my ego patterns were shaped over the years. I started doing more spiritual development work of really uh, clarifying my own beliefs and what was really important to me and, and how I wanted to live my life. And a big part of that is my view of, of the, uh, 
the kind of sacredness of every human being, every soul that's on this earth. And that, uh, uh, you know, that's, I believe, uh, again, that's how we're made. That's how uh, we're, you know, uh, that's how we should relate to each other with that level of, of kind of love and compassion and, and equality. Um, and so, so that's what then I said, there's got to be a better way to run a company that acknowledges that a, a type of company that that vast majority of people would love to work in because they would be treated so well, they would be trusted, they would be seen, actually seen as ends and ends unto themselves, right? Yes, they know they have a job, of course, and we know we have to be successful as a company. Um, and we use our work in the company and that drive for excellence to help make people better. Uh, because people working better together, listening to each other, being more authentic, et cetera, et cetera, um, is what leads to better uh, execution on problems, opportunities, more creativity, more intuition anyway, right? So it all works together. And that's where we came up with this new model that then at the end became known as the dual bottom line. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Steve, as you're talking, first of all, I notice my heart enlarges. Uh, it, it rises in me as you talk about people being ends in themselves and that there's a real distinction here. And I want to get into it a little bit because it might seem subtle, but I think it's really important. The distinction between let's develop the people in our organization. Let's train them. Let's teach people mindfulness. So we can make more money. That's different than saying the development of people is an end in and of itself. And I think my discovery of you and our growing friendship, part of the reason it's been so meaningful to me is that I think I thought, well, oh, you know, Tammy, you think that way and you run a nice small company in Boulder, Colorado that publishes spiritual wisdom teachings. So you have the luxury of thinking that way. But here you are, you're under the pressure of public markets and giving shareholder return on a quarterly basis. And you held that up as an ethos that people are ends in themselves and it worked for you. So that's what I want to get at this distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a question in there or you want me to just uh, talk about it? Um, more. Well, I want you to talk more about it because I think a lot of companies and even companies who are sending people to the new inner MBA program that Sounds True has created, this nine-month certification program, are like, great, I want the people who go to this program to become more emotionally intelligent so we can make more money. And you know that's part of why the program appeals to people. And there's value in that. But I often notice something in me gets a little tweaked. Yeah. Like I'm like, no, that's not yeah. it. You're not quite right. on it. So I guess I'm just looking for some dialogue with you on this point. Right. Well, look, I, I believe that, uh, that there is an equality to people uh, and a potential that resides in the, in kind of the human capacity and at the kind of level of everyone's soul, I believe, um, they, we are all 
uh, looking for the same thing. And, and what is that? It's uh, we want to be seen. Um, I don't want to be seen as superior to you, nor do I want to see, be seen as inferior to you, right? Uh, I want the freedom to be able to express my own authentic self without any fear of judgment or condemnation or, you know, uh, et cetera. Uh, and I want to be able to assume that you have integrity in that. Uh, I want to be included. We, we want to be included. We want to feel physically and psychologically safe when we're together. We don't want to feel abused or at risk. Um, I want to be acknowledged uh, and I want to be able to use my own, my talents. I want to be able to bring my full self into whatever situation we're talking about. Obviously I want to be treated fairly. I want to, uh, and I want to have others listen to me. And, and by the way, I I'll be accountable for my actions. I want you to help me help hold me accountable. Right. And so this, these are, uh, companies don't install these, these uh, descriptors or these in, into people that this is how people come, right? This is how people are. And so we believe in Inpro that, that people should, that, that that's, we need to organize our governance, our ways of working, our ways of coming together as teams, our ways of interacting and communicating and every process and practice in the company has to be lined, aligned with the view that that's how people are going to be treated. We believe that people are, as we use the term inside of Enpro, hardwired to learn, uh, that people want to be and want to learn and be challenged. This has been proven to me over and over and over again. I used to say, I say to the guys, I said, what, who, show me, you take me, you think there's somebody in our company that doesn't have these characteristics? I said, I want you to take me to them because I have not yet met the person, Tammy, who wants to go home at the end of the day and say to their loved one, uh, you know, it was really mediocre today. Uh, that's not how we're wired. We are wired for excellence. We want to be proud of ourselves. We want others to be proud of us. We want to do a good job. And so we tried in Inpro, we try to design our daily work that uh, that uh, in a way that this learning muscle is always being used. It's always being used, but it's being used in a in an environment that's that's uh, very supportive. Everybody's being authentic with each other. Uh, we're able to give and receive uh, uh, assessments from each other that help us get better. Um, and it's not in a, you know, kind of threatening judgment power based way. Right. So when we do that, then, uh, the organization just, just flourishes. We do think of more creative things. We take more risks. We win more on this. We, the organization learns the pace of learning inside of Impro is, um, is phenomenal. And, and in fact, Ed Hess, I've mentioned to you before, he's a business professor down at Darden, has written a couple of great books, uh, uh, Learn or Die, about companies, and then also a recent book called Humility's the New Smart. Well, he's working on a book right now called uh, something about hyper-learning. That's probably the title, hyper-learning, and he's going to use Enpro as one of his case examples because 
the the individual and organizational learning is at such a fast pace because it's wired in to do that. So this does lead to to uh, to better financial performance. There's no uh, it, it doesn't have to be seen as oh that is why we're doing it. It's not why we're doing it. We we've had people inside our company, and I can think of two off the top of my head, who uh, one of them was doing a great job for our company, and it was the woman, and she uh, she had always aspired to be a uh, a psychologist. So we paid for her to go to school at night. She worked on it. She was. She was uh, did a great job for us while she worked at the company. Was a coach, was head of HR for one of our businesses, and you know volunteered at a crisis uh, child uh, children's crisis uh, center. And then when she got her degree, that's what she went and did. And we all felt great about that, right? We had another individual, a senior sales executive, one of our top people in the division, direct report to a division president, doing fantastic, responsible for all kinds of sales, right? He went through our, uh, you know, our, our centerpiece leadership development uh, program that I taught twice. I've told you about this. I've taught, I taught it twice a year with others. Uh, and it was an opportunity for people to really begin looking at their selves, their own purpose, their own ego behavior and and what was really important to him and so forth. And, uh, and he realized that uh, he and his wife had, had adopted three uh, Russian children several years before this. And he had told his wife when they did it, if it ever became too much for her, he would, he would uh, change his, his career uh, and, and be homework because he had to, he had to travel a lot in this, in this job. And so, uh, at this program, he realized that uh, that time had come because uh, these, a couple of the one of the kids in particular was a little older when he was adopted and had issues that that needed uh, you know needed to father around and so he left. He's he's a very good friend of mine. I talk to him frequently. How could any organization say that's not a good thing for this person and? humanity and the way we want to operate right so it it, it, it when leaders have that attitude of caring when when impro has that attitude of caring for others and wanting to do what's you know wanting to support people in what they determine is best for them that's just a uh, that's just a winning formula Mm-hmm. When you look back at your 12 years at Empro, what would you say were the practices or the new ways of operating that you're the most proud of, that were the most innovative? Specific ways of operating. Um, so we call those, uh, you know, practices and processes. And I think one of the most powerful is uh, what we uh, called authentic community building. And it's really effective. Uh, it's a team coming together and working effectively together. And there's, uh, you know, Scott Peck, M Scott Peck was probably the, one of the leading developers of, uh, of the community practice. We leaned heavily on him and heavily on 
uh, a guy that was his understudy that we brought into the company to help us, a guy named Kaz Gods, who's who's written uh, uh, stuff as well. But we learned uh, a process called community building, and we named it that specifically because uh, the normal uh, language around team building and team effectiveness and so forth has some baggage with it. Uh, and uh, frankly, I don't, I've done it, uh, both as a leader and as a participant, as a team member, I've done the ropes course and the, this and that, that's generally uh, many people, you know, uh, put it under the category of team building. I don't think it works, uh, anyway. Uh, but, uh, but community building works and, you know, the definition of, of community is just, it's very simple gr- a group of individuals that have learned how to communicate honestly with each other. Uh, and they have deep relationship and uh, relationships and a significant commitment to each other, right? They like to, it's members will share in each other's, uh, successes and failures, right? It's a very authentic and safe, uh, environment. Uh, if you talk to one of our people and you'd say, what's it like to be part of whatever community, any given person would be part of a number of different teams, uh, councils, we call them, uh, where they would have done and actively do this community building practice, right? So they might be on a division council uh, that's responsible for the uh, leadership of a specific business, or they might be on a, a manufacturing council or an innovation council or, and, and some councils come and go, uh, some are more permanent. They are around for a while, but if we have a specific issue that we're going to tackle, like we need to re- redesign our, our benefits, uh, our company benefits program, uh, which we did a few years ago, we would create a, a new benefits council. It would do that task and then it would, would, would more or less disband. And the councils are characterized by folks that jo- can join and leave. It's not, uh, it's not, there's not a hard wall around it because it, it's built on the, these principles that we're talking about of, of acceptance and, and, uh, and, and equality of people. So it's easy for people to, to join and leave without the normal, uh, you know, kind of social consequences of breaking up a group or trying to join a new group or so forth. And most people would describe those communities as if you said, what's it feel like? Well, it's a psychologically safe environment. I'm uh, here to support it. And everybody on the team feels equally responsible. Uh, They've learned, uh, we've we've all learned a new uh, type of language to take ownership of our beliefs. So we use I statements when we're making a, a, a statement of, of, of how we feel about a particular issue. Um, and there's a number of practices associated with this, including we will sit in a circle with chairs and no tables between us. And we'll do a meditation to start to get everyone kind of present in that space, sometimes silent, sometimes guided. We will uh, then do a check-in where where we'll have a few, and sometimes if there's not much time and depending on the group, we'll do a one word check-in where we'll just go around and everyone will share one word. That's their current uh, mood or, you know, what's, what's going on inside of them. Usually it's a, it's a shorter, it's a check-in that, that, that allows people to say, here's what's going on for me, you know, right now. 
And then there's a check out at the end. And then these, these rules are followed throughout the process. And the, the, the whole purpose of that is so that that group has a real conversation and that the full conversation happens in the room not in the hallway or the so-called water cooler or coffee pot, et cetera. And there's disagreement um, in these and, and everybody uh, participates. And, uh, and when people leave, they feel good about the fact that they've uh, been uh, fully uh, ownership. You know, they've had shared ownership with everyone else. They've been able to share what's on their mind. The group, uh, typically, these groups come to an answer uh, or a direction that's far better than any one person or two people could have developed because they kind of get in flow. And we've taught everyone how to work on themselves, manage themselves in this process. We have an expression inside of Inpro uh, that we use frequently, I'm not my idea. So when people put forth a new idea, um, uh, we've taught uh, folks how to not be so identified with, is that right or wrong? Am I being called, you know, called out on this? Do ever, does everybody agree with me or whatever? It's just an idea. It's not my idea. It's an idea. And folks build on that and, and talk about it. So we have the power of the collective just is huge. And so, and, and these, and, and community can be built with small groups and large groups, uh, and it takes time. It takes uh, a little bit of understanding of, of, of the methods needed to do it. Uh, it's not 100% reliable, but it's pretty reliable. I'd say 75 or 80% reliable when done uh, according to the rules and protocol and, and methods that we have. Um, and when it works, it's the one of the most rewarding ways for people to come together that I've ever been part of or experienced or seen. So I'd say I'd put that at the top of the list, Tammy. That's one of the practices I'm most proud of, of how we do things, because that's touched uh, virtually all 6,000 of our colleagues in the company. Now, you mentioned psychological safety and that these councils, these communities have a high level of psychological safety. And, you know, there have been studies now that have shown that a success of a team, the performance of a team, the number one factor that leads to that is psychological safety in the group. How were you able to create that at MPRO? Well, I think... Uh, uh... Um, um, again, I don't, I wouldn't say we're hundred percent successful, but we're pretty darn successful, uh, at it. And I'd say we started at the top of the company, uh, teaching. I learned in our top team, we all learned together. And then we became a vulnerable and exposed with this process in front of, uh, the next layer. Well, I still remember, one of our experiences, we call it's called the fishbowl exercise. People in the inside of Impro who were are still there. This would have been, gosh, probably ten years ago now when we first time we did this. Uh, but it was a it was our January conference. We had a top hundred people from around the world coming, and the way it worked is, <clears throat> so we in a circle in the middle, we had a uh, 
Impro Executive Council meeting, a real meeting, not just a you know role play, but we had a real meeting, and everyone else kind of sat around and stand, stood around the outside, kind of looking into this quote unquote fishbowl. Right, we were we were we were there, and so we uh, we worked on some hard issues and we challenged each other and we you know we went through the whole uh, extended uh, community building process in front of everyone else uh, to role model. Okay, guys, this is not just fun and games. We're not just making people feel good because it's, it's in the, it's it, normally groups come together. Uh, and we actually learned that this is what Scott Peck called pseudo community and the characteristics of a pseudo community, which you'd find in almost any company in any group that comes together uh, over extended periods of time they're generally conflict avoiding and they really try to ignore sweep under the rug individual differences between each other and kind of very general blanket statements are allowed without being challenged they're pleasant but often the proverbial white elephant is never named um that's not how communities behave authentic communities it's the exact opposite extremely genuine and authentic it's a conflict resolving body where individual differences are recognized and celebrated. But, um, and so we taught it, we demonstrated it, and then we started to teach it and experiment with it. And then each of the uh, executive council members um, were, were charged with leading both their immediate team. And then what we had, we had, when we designed our operating system in the early days, which was what I mentioned is the, how we do commercial activity, manufacturing, innovation, et cetera. Uh, we had specific councils formed with uh, folks from across the globe, uh, call it 10 or 12 per person. And, uh, and two, two, two of my team were assigned to lead each one of those. And their, their job was to practice leading in a new way. One, they didn't have single point accountability. They had to share uh, leadership with another person. And number two, there was a whole set of things that they uh, had to practice to bring to that group the same type of, uh, of uh, a community building practice and the same type of authenticity and feel as they were experiencing in the NPRO executive council level. And that was a real challenge for them. It took a long time. I mean, it took, took a couple of years to work through that in some cases. And we can, can keep hammering it at it and keep practicing and keep talking about it and practice again and practice in, in public with, with in front of other people so that when someone uh, uh, did hold back or they were challenged. And, and, and so, and, and slowly, very slowly, but surely we, st I started to witness more uh, people speaking, uh, speaking truth to power, if you will. Right. Well, there's two sides of that coin, right? One is the leader has to want it uh, and, and, and support it and, and, and has to manage their own ego in the face of it, which is not easy. Uh, and the subordinate, uh, the lower level person has to have the courage 
to speak up. And we worked on both sides of that equation, Tammy. We worked very, very hard. And through these leadership development programs we did, through how we came together as an executive council on a monthly basis, uh, and through the practice that they used with others. And then as we cascaded it down and we started to do development programs with frontline uh, folks, uh, we followed the same set of, of practices um, and taught at the, at the front level these, the same kind of thing where they were able to see the leadership role model and so forth. And then over time, over my time there, as I encountered and other leaders, as we as collective encountered folks that could not make this type of transition uh, quick enough to, to meet our needs and they held positions of power, uh, you know, they, were, they, they left the company. So uh, that was a big part of it too. You mentioned as the leader that you had to welcome, that's my word, but people speaking truth to power. You had to create receptivity for that. What's the journey you had to go through, Steve, very personally, in working with your own ego patterns such that you were receptive in that way? Yeah, I think it's. I think it started, Tammy, with uh, I went. I went to a nine-day uh, program at an organization called Learning as Leadership. It's called Personal Mastery, and it was a nine-day program for us to each of the participants. And I went basically by myself with with. I mean, this is this is the before. This is with the company right before I joined Inpro. So this I was CEO of another company when I learned about this. And went to this program. It was nine days of very intensive, but what we did is a very, very detailed self-diagnosis of uh, all of our past and our ego patterns. They have a very, very rigorous methodology to map this out in this kind of series of charts that all kind of connect. And, and it, but it, but basically, what it is is it's going back. Anyone who's been through. Uh, psychotherapy, I would imagine, is very similar to this. I've never done that, but this I, I kind of view this as psychotherapy for more or less healthy people and uh, going back through all the different uh, emotional events that happened to us when we were young, mostly from our, you know, our caregivers, our parents and our family situation, families of origin, but also other other sites of shaping, as Strozzi would refer to them, of authority figures and so forth, and we form these these patterns of way of of behaving. Now, of course, this program starts with a extensive uh, 360 that's done by uh, one of the LAL team interviewing uh, your a person's uh, feedback partners, and and in my case, it included my wife and all and people I've worked you know closely with, right. And it's a pretty tough process because, you know, they, they don't spend a ton of time talking about strengths. Most of it is about development needs. And what I learned in that process was like, oh, my gosh, I'm really not I'm not coming across with others. I'm not, you know, working with them in a way that, quite frankly, I was very proud of. And even though I was a pretty darn good, I thought I was a pretty darn good leader at the time. I wasn't abusive or anything like that. But. 
it's just the subtle things of, you know, I was never listened to uh, as a child. So, you know, I, uh, I want to be the one with the answers. I want to be the one that's smart. I want, I'm trying to prove myself. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't like conflict and why don't I like, I, I mean, I, if, if I had a nickel for every time my mother said, uh, you know, if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, don't say it. Uh, which was one of the societal values of, of the time. And I came up learning that. So when I, so when I had to, to, to give one of my team members, uh, you know, constructive feedback, it was very, very difficult for me. And I was always looking for a way to ease, ease out of that. Well, people know that, right? And so this is the kind of feedback that was coming to me. And so when I went into the program in the beginning, I was, I was uh, ready to try to understand what this was like. And I really... It was a, it was an inflection point in my life. I really learned a lot about myself. Why was I so emotionally closed, and why did I do all these things? And that really started me down a path. And then we we sent other people from that company, and I saw them beginning to work on uh, uh, their own patterns. And I saw the organization began to just, uh, you know, soften the political lines, the disagreement. And, and that was a different company that, that I think about a year to about a year after I went to the program, I ended up leaving the company to join Inpro as the CEO. And so uh, the LAL uh, organization has been a big part of our journey as well. So while all this other stuff I was mentioning was going on, we were sending um, individuals from the leadership. I'll bet we've sent 60 or 70 people over the years, over these uh, you know 10 plus years, we've sent out to LAL for this nine-day program. This it's expensive, so it was it was you know only those we can only afford to do it for those where we had a lot of leverage. Uh, so all our division president, all my team has been, all the next level down leaders of the divisions you know have been. Uh, and then we, and then they had a program called shared mastery where you would go as a team. And, and I took the initial team there. And, and then as the team changed over a number of years later, I took the team back. That's a five day program and really works more on, um, uh, the type of, of community. You do, every, all the participants do individual work as well, but there's, there's a, there's the, 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 the whole group working together sharing what they're learning about themselves and talking about how do these dynamics show up uh, with, with each other. And so, so once I started down that path, uh, I became more and more interested in that. And so, and I think it's gotten more general business press, right? Uh, some number of years after that, Keegan and Leahy came out with immunity to change, which speaks directly to that phenomenon. And, and, and the more I learned, about and then I, I, I and then when I started to understand the power of a reflection and quiet time, and started uh, meditating again. I had meditated as a young younger uh, when I learned it was a long long time ago. But I had kind of come in and out of the practice over the years. And when I started studying the work of of, of Dan Siegel. Uh, which I studied a lot of his stuff, much of it, as you know, through Sounds True, um, I started to realize, whoa, this is not just, I mean, this is essential for you know, brain health and clarity of thinking and clarity of 
purpose and direction and so forth. And so I started doing that, which then took me more into uh, my own, uh, I would call spiritual growth, spiritual journey, where I began to try to really deeply clarify, you know, what was important to me and challenged many of my own mental models and beliefs of, of, of some of the past, perhaps more dogmatic ways of, of thinking about things into a much more uh, you know, softer and universal uh, and spiritual way of thinking about the world and the universe. And, and uh, as part of our program uh, at Inpro, uh, it was all, you know, a big part of it was about, uh, you know, what we call, we came to call accessing source which is really what Joseph Jaworski has written so much about in his book, First Synchronicity, and then the book is called Source, right? Which is tapping into uh, what he would describe as the implicate order, right? Of the, the knowledge contained in the universe looking to emerge. And that's what the whole U theory and Otto Schomer is all about. And that's what we, so we brought Otto in and taught us all how to, uh, follow the uh, you process that that really helps individuals work to uh, tap their intuition uh, because of this uh, source of knowledge there uh, in in solving problems and in in seeing emerging futures and so the more so it all kind of then began to build on each other and um, and all kind of fits together, uh, at least in my, in, my own, in my own mind. It may not be coming out that way. but uh. You know, Steve, one of the things that's so interesting to me when you talk about accessing source and tapping intuition, I imagine employees being trained in that if they're working in Silicon Valley. They have to learn mindfulness meditation and know uh, what's emerging in the field for the future. But here you are, you have 6,000 plus factory workers and you're teaching them meditation and how to access source and intuition to improve the quality and their performance and their own depth of experience working in manufacturing plants. And, and that's what yeah, is so yeah. astounding. Yeah. To me, how were you able to introduce meditation at that level to factory workers? Yeah, that 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 was a challenge. Still is a challenge. You know, some uh, you know kind of uh, hardcore. I mean, it, it takes it takes uh, it takes some time for folks to uh, to get a little bit more comfortable with it. Right? We don't push. We we have a centering, uh, as we call it, at the beginning of of. Uh, uh, team meetings uh, where uh, in the beginning it's just three minutes of silence for everyone to kind of just collect together. Um, uh, but but going into the as called the implicate order, it, it sounds too fancy, right? If you read a normal business book, it would call entering the state of flow as a team, right? Well. How do you do that? Well, it it, it requires this authentic community uh, context as well, right? It, 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 I don't care what one would call it, uh, but it has to be an environment of psychological safety. It has to be an environment where people are all participating, where they feel ownership, et cetera. Um, and so that 
and that then, along with the quiet time, the reflection, not always being in a hurry, allowing everybody to talk, slowing down the, the, the mental process, building on each other and so forth and so on, it, it emerges. It emerges, right, over time. And folks, the more folks do it, the more comfortable they become. I could tell you so many fun examples, Tammy, that I have of I'm thinking of one manufacturing process right now where we make one of our flagship ceiling products up in Palmyra, New York, called uh, Gylon. And it's cut into gaskets that are used in, uh, yeah, it's the best in the industry, used in, in high performance, uh, high temperature, and high, highly corrosive environments. And it basically seals uh, two gaskets, right, in some kind of a uh, you know, pipeline system with a chemical or something that you don't want to leak. It can't leak. Uh, and we would produce it in big sheets. And then we send these sheets out to gasket cutters around the country who are our distributors and they cut it into gaskets and deliver it to, to, uh, chemical plants. And for years, the years when I got there, they had always struggled with these big sheets there. I don't remember exactly how big, but they might be, you know, 80 inches across the width and maybe, maybe let's call them 80 by 80 inches. So they're big, they're big, uh, big sheets, but they would come out very um, wavy and that would kind of come and go and we could never solve the problem through the traditional problem solving tools. Well, in those problem solving tools were what you would see in many organizations, uh, engineers leading a sophisticated uh, design of experiments, uh, type of method and getting people to get, you know, putting the ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Well, finally we approached it with this new way of, uh, of thinking. This was, this has been a number of years now and sure enough, uh, the team came up with, uh, with a way to permanently solve the problem. We haven't had the problem for, I can't even remember it was five, six years. Mm -hmm. And so here's a process that's been around for, 30 years, Tammy, of how we do this, right? And it was one of these things where, oh, you know, it's more art than science and so forth, and people run it different. Yeah, I mean, these are the things you run into in factories. And uh, and just, you know, I th we're, we're in the truck parts business. We, we, make, we make parts for the wheel end of, of semi-trucks, uh, the oil seals and hubcaps and, and braking systems and suspension and so forth, everything that would go into the wheel end of a, of a class eight commercial vehicle, right? One year, one year that, that business has been around for probably 60 years, right? And we've been producing these core products for a long time, right? One year that team introduced 12 new products. <laughs> hmm. I mean, how would you, I, 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 where did they come from? I mean, I would have mm -hmm. never thought of 12 and, and got them all introduced into the marketplace in, in, in one year. And this was just one year. And when we first started this uh, new way of thinking about innovation and bringing people together and, and frankly, got comfortable with more risk with, with the organization taking more risk because we trusted people more. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, you said just specifically about the meditation practice that you've introduced in these groups, you call it centering. That makes a lot of sense to me. But then you said three minutes of silence or a guided practice. You know, it sounds true. We do a one minute, good minute practice. And what I notice, uh -huh. especially with new people, is that about 30 seconds, you can see people starting to squirm. 
like the, one minute. This is, and this right. is that sounds true in Boulder, Colorado. Right. Three minutes of silence. That's a long time, Steve, for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's great. Seriously, though, when did our society get to a point where an individual that's in a group of people has to feel uncomfortable sitting with their eyes closed for three minutes of silence? When did that when did that happen? Because I don't think it's good for I don't think it's good for our society. I think that people to be with themselves and to be comfortable with themselves and comfortable with their own interior world, it's just such a huge gift to give people. And it's not something to be feared or avoided. It's something to be embraced and, and, and celebrated. And, oh, my gosh, yeah, this, all this stuff is going on, all this mental mind chatter. What's it all mean? Why is it? How's it drive me? Why are all these kinds of things? This is what we talk about. So anyway, go ahead. Let's take this one more moment, Steve. How did you get thousands of people comfortable with this? What kind of, I mean, centering, I get that language. How else are you, you know, indoctrinating me into a cult? You know, I, I'm not comfortable with this. This is religious. All the normal objections that people have. Yeah. Well, you know, we didn't we didn't start it uh, across the board on day one. We started with the senior team. We practiced over time. We cascaded it down. It fit into the larger purpose of what we were trying to do with the company and shape the company. So folks saw others do it. Then when we got to individual factories, we would typically we, we'd form up into what we call core teams, which were folks that would begin to come together in these in this council kind of format that I just described. Uh, and we would start slowly at a site. And we, you know, and we didn't really force people. We said, here's what we're going to do. And we had enough uh, courageous people that led in that. And I don't mean leaders. I mean, you know, frontline operators and so forth. And as we started to have successes, we talked about it um, and brought more visibility to it. It became more common. It would spread at that site. We would share it across other sites. I'll give you an example. So it, it, there's no rocket science to it. It's just, it's just sticking to it over a long period of time. But I, I was, it was so rewarding because you know, as a CEO, most of the times when I hear from a frontline person, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's not good news, right? <laughs> it's a complaint about something or, or whatnot. So one time I go into my office, this is, we were probably two years into our transformation and, uh, we had rolled it out. We'd started at the top and I, and I did, I went around and did a series of community building sessions with cross-functional folks. Uh, and uh, uh, kind of a diagonal slice, if you will. So I would go to a given site, depending on its size, and I would spend a day and I would run four community building uh, practices. And I would start those, Tammy, by reading the rabbi's gift, which is the preface to, to Scott Peck's book, a Dif The Different Drum. 
and it really is a it's a it's a mythical story about uh acceptance of others no matter what they bring to the table it's a very good little story and it's just, it's a short little story It'd take about five minutes to read and i after getting the group together we would do a centering that i would lead okay and many times this was their first experience with the centering we do a centering and then i would read this story okay and then i would just sit there and i would i would start by saying how did that strike you and i would redirect the conversation into the middle of the room instead of with me and there, there might be 15 to 20 people in the room and folks would start talking about it. What was meaningful to them in this story? What were the insights they gained? What did they like about it? What did they not like about it? And so forth. So they could be honest talking about this mythical story, right? And then after maybe 20, 25 minutes of that, I would say to them, what would it mean to create? So, and for that 20, 25 minutes, I haven't said a word. And if, if there's silence, like if somebody says something, uh, one of the, one of the principles of community building is to respect silence. So I literally would not say a word. We'd sometimes sit there for five, seven minutes before the next person would chime in, but slowly people would realize, okay, I'm going to share something. Talk about pregnant pauses. I mean, this was, this was it. And so then, uh, about 20, 25 minutes in, I would say, well, what would it be like to have that type of environment here at work? That's the only question I would pose. And then the group would start talking about what was really going on in their group, in that site. Now, here we have people, supervisors, department leaders, hourly folks from all across, start having, for the first time ever, an honest conversation. And it wasn't a gripe session. And it was, sorry, I have an honest conversation about what it's like to, to, to work there. And then they would go on for some period of time, and I would then begin to engage, to have people begin to, as they felt more comfortable, begin to elaborate on different, on different things, right? And so, anyway, I did that with, with a group at one of these sites, and then and it had to be probably six or nine months later, I'm in my office in Charlotte. I go into my room. I've got a voicemail. I listen to the voicemail, and it's this guy. He says, Steve, you don't know me. My name is Gregory Johnson, and I work in the high-pressure sheet group. At, at Again, this is also up at Palmyra, New York. And I've been here. I've been at this company for 25 years. And I, you, you don't know me, and I, and I just thought you should know it's working. You came up here six or nine months ago and read us the story about the rabbi. And I just thought somebody should tell you it's working. And then he hung up. That was it. And so my next visit, I, I got called him and got him on the phone. And my next, I went up there not too long after that for a visit and sat down with him and other members of, of, of that team. And I said, what's going on, guys? And they were, I mean, to a person in that team, they were excited. They said the whole place is, I mean, it's, they, we feel like we're owners of this. We get to work on the things that we, that we, that we think are important. We're changing it. We're making it better. And by the way, we're producing more sheets. Our costs are down, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now that's after 
a lot of work with the division president and all the leaders between the division president and this team. And this, this is a couple of years into it. And so what I did, Tammy, you said, how did we get this kind of practice spread around? So I did a town, I did a global town hall meeting from that site with that team. And so here we are, we did virtual town hall meetings and I had, was sitting there with those guys and I said, okay, guys, talk, t- tell me what to, tell me what uh, you're so excited about, what you've been doing, how you've been working together. What do you think about it? Right. And then able to ask questions of them, their colleagues able to ask questions that, uh, that you normally wouldn't, wouldn't ask in front of the boss, right? Cause they might embarrass the boss questions like, well, what are you doing all that med- meditation crap? How's that? How's that working? I, I don't like that. Right. And they'd say, well, you know, we center and uh, we've grown to think it's uh, helpful to us because we kind of just calm down. We're coming in off the floor. We're meeting in a room. It, it takes it, it's good to just take some time to, to kind of settle in. And and, yeah, we like to check in because uh, we get to find out what's going on. We know each other. We know our colleagues better now. We've worked with them for 25 years. We know them better now after a few months of doing this. Then we have it at 25 years. That doesn't mean we, we necessarily uh, uh, are friends that we're going to go hang out outside the workplace, but by gosh, we can work together. So this is the kind of things that here, and, and so this is on the town hall, uh, we actually did. And, and so others around the world see this as their own people speaking to them, and they're able to say, okay, it gets a little bit more credibility. So it's all of these pieces, Tammy, that have to be, consistently done over many, many years to really move an organization of, of, of our size and complexity. Cause as you know, we're spread out all over the world. Mm-hmm. We know, as I mentioned in the beginning, Steve, I find you a very unusual person and so grateful for our relationship and grateful that you are a contributing faculty member to the inner MBA, you'll be teaching on authentic community building as part of the virtual program of the inner MBA. It's a nine month certificate program. Sounds True has created it in partnership with LinkedIn, Wisdom 2.0, and graduates get a certificate from a division of NYU called Mindful NYU. The program begins in September of this year, 2020. It runs through May of 2021. And for people who are interested, you can find out more at innermbaprogram.com. Steve, before we conclude our conversation, just one final question for you. The Inner MBA is designed for business professionals to come and have nine months of the type of training you've been pointing to as you talk about the transformation that you led at NPRO. And when you gave a talk recently at the Inner MBA Hub at the recent Wisdom 2.0 conference, you talked about what you called a leader's essential development imperative. And really what you pointed to, and, and this is a quote, that whatever the level of development of the leader is of any unit, of any manufacturing plant, of any division or company. That sets the limit to the development level of that organizational group. 
And to end our conversation, I wonder if you can just comment on that point, because I think sometimes people think, well, you know, the organization, it can grow and it can thrive, even if the leader is unconscious in XYZ or not committed to the development. But you're pointing to something quite different here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's not something I've ever, uh, not, I don't remember ever reading. Uh, it's something that I've kind of come to just in my observation. Um, and again, it's the, co- it, 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 as I call it, the collective development of the organization, not necessarily the development level of any individual in that group. But whether it's a plant and it's a plant manager or a, shift, a shift supervisor, or as you said, a company and or a division, the division president. It's just that in the model uh, that we have, and we don't have time now to talk about, uh, uh, you know, self-management and, and, and so forth, but, but th- we just live in a society and in our companies where there is a, some level of, of hierarchical structure. And it's, I don't think it's bad. It's an efficient way to organize and uh, conduct things. Um, and leaders have a real role to play. But because of the power and authority that goes along with that role, um, and sometimes it's visible and, and you can see it, sometimes it's very, very subtle. But because of that, uh, I've just come to have a strong point of view that that leader, wherever they are in their uh, inner capacity and inner development level, sets the cap on that organization. And that's why uh, I've been so excited about the inner MBA since you first told me about it uh, some number of months ago, because it's exactly, exactly the types of of behaviors and insights and practice that we've been working on for a decade at, at, at Enpro. And I, I hope, I hope people see it, you know, for what it is, but if, if someone really aspires to have a great organization, um, this type of work, whether they do the inner MBA or do it some other way is absolutely essential in my view. And Steve, when you say a leader's inner development, I just want you to define that, if you will, how you would define that for our listeners. I think sometimes people hear that and they're like, what? Inner development? That sounds a little vague. What is that? Yeah, well, it's, you know, in, in the, in, when I was speaking out there at the, at the, uh, at the hub, uh, I used a guy named Barrett Brown's definition, and he called it vertical learning. Uh, and it really is how someone thinks, how someone interprets situations, how a person handles complexity and ambiguity, how a person cultivates relationships and, and works in, uh, you know, it's basically their own kind of op- intra- their own operating system. Right. So just just like a just like a, a PC, if you want to draw an analogy, it's the operating system of a of a of a leader. And, and it is driven by um, these uh, unconscious drivers of the ego that need to be sorted out and understood. It's driven by uh, the clarity that that leader has around what they want to create uh, and, and where that comes from in them. Right. Um, So that's very deep work. That's very personal work. And so, 
very reflective and contemplative type of work to, to come to this, right? And that's what then ends up inspiring and motivating and creating, uh, you know, a, a better, you know, kind of uh, great enduring organization. And so uh, that's how I think about the notion of, uh, of inner development, Tammy. Again, I've been speaking with Steve McAdam. He's one of the CEOs and conscious business trainers who are participating in Sounds True's new Inner MBA program. And if you want to find out more, just go to innermbaprogram.com. Steve, thank you for your friendship and for all that I learned from you. And such a joy to be able to share you with the Insights at the Edge audience. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.